Well, it's great to be here in my old uh, cabin where I spent 22 years doing a deep retreat when I first arrived in Crestown. And it's a great pleasure to be here today with my old friend Roger Wharton, <laughs> longtime friend and also a long-term practitioner of the way of nature process. And uh, we thought this would be a nice opportunity as we're entering into the holiday times, Christmas holidays, to have a little sharing from Roger, especially. I'll maybe throw a few things in about uh, uh, the role of Christianity and ecology, how they really have been dancing together over time in a number of ways. And uh, many of these uh, ways are not so widely known right. in the broader and local and international and national communities. So I thought it'd be wonderful since Way of Nature is all about uh, nature connected spirituality and uh, deep connection and about an intercultural, interfaith approach to that to have really wonderful sharing from one of the, one of the leading figures in Christianity and ecology. Mr. Roger Wharton is yeah. here with us today. Well, thank you, John. Yeah. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, of course. Um, we've known each other since 1985, I think we figured out today. Um, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about myself to kind of give you an idea of who's talking today. Um, I grew up in central Ohio, and some of my earliest memories are memories of the natural world. Memories of taking little hikes through the woods with my father at that particular house that we lived in in my early years. We had a very large garden, so memories of the garden, and those kinds of things. So I've had a lot of early memories of nature and connecting with nature. And then I was very fortunate as I grew up to live in a place where nature wasn't too far away. We had a large vacant field and a small pine plantation just two doors away from where I lived. And as growing up kids, we spent most of our time there. So we had a lot of connection with nature that way. I was active in Boy Scouts, and we spent a lot of time camping. Um, other outdoor experiences with my grandparents up at Lake Erie, and just different kinds of ways of being in connection with nature. And um, I think through that process, there was also a spiritual connection that was starting to build, although, although I wasn't able to label it as spiritual at that point in time in my life. But eventually, I started to understand a little bit more about that. Uh, our family was a Midwestern Ohio Protestant family that was very active in church at the time I was growing up, and so I grew up within a... Uh, church environment. It was during the baby boom, so we had lots of kids and at, you know young adults in, in the church also, so it was an exciting time to be a member of that. We did uh, nature hikes and trips together. We spent time, I spent time at church camp, and church camp in those days was very much nature-centered. We studied, and everything was outdoors. We just lived outdoors, basically, and the theology that we studied is what we call today creation-centered theology. And so I was lucky to be exposed to that. So eventually, um, I 
went off to college, was a biology major, um, studied ecology. In those first years of college, when I was studying ecology, I'd come home and say, what are you studying? i say ecology, and then I'd have to define it for everybody. Nobody knew what it was, so it was kind of a fun thing. So um, through those college years and previous to that, I started working at a, at a camp uh, during the summer. I started a Boy Scout camp, and I was the nature counselor, and then I switched to a settlement house or a community center camp and did a little bit of everything until eventually I was the camp director. So I spent all my summers basically outdoors all the time with people teaching them about nature and, and so forth. So it was natural for me to kind of get interested in a new movement at that time, which was called outdoor education, which eventually they started to rename it because of funding was more available for environmental education than it was for outdoor education. So I was an outdoor environmental education teacher um, I first four years of teaching was in an outdoor education school. Kids would come and stay at the school, the camp setting for a week, and we would do all kinds of things outdoors. So I've been very interested and in, involved in teaching and, and introducing other people to nature also. Then along the line, I kind of had a spiritual awakening or renewal or whatever and became more active in uh, the church in Illinois where the where the uh, outdoor education school was, and it happened to be an Episcopal church, and I became very interested in the Episcopalian metaphor of Christianity and ended up going to seminary. And the seminary, luckily for me, was a small little seminary on 500 acres of land on a lake in, on, in Wisconsin. So again, I had a lot more time to spend outdoors with nature and, and all of those kinds of things. And so since being ordained as a Episcopal priest, you know, I have been exposed to lots of other types of spirituality. Now, we all know that Christianity doesn't have a great history in many respects, the way we treated native cultures as European colonies used Christianity as an excuse to exterminate native cultures, as European culture used Christianity to justify slavery. And that's, that's part of our shadow side, and there's no question about that. And, you know, you go back further, further, we look at the witch trials and the persecution of women who were nature people. And we look at the Inquisition and all of the shadow side that we have with us. And what I want to try to do today is to say, even during all of the persecution and shadow side, there were a group of Christians that were in the creation-centered mode, who were very close to nature, and that continued that tradition up to today. And that's part of what my heritage is, I consider. So the shadow is there. There's no turning away from it. It's just there. But since I became ordained as a priest, I have started looking at lots of different kinds of spiritualities and religions and, and so forth. I was fortunate enough to have parishes that were inside an uh, Indian reservation in Wisconsin. And then when I was in Alaska, I was very close to the Native community there and was a drummer and a dancer with one of the Native groups. So I've had some experience with some Native spirituality. I have looked at 
many different kinds of Christian expressions of spirituality. And there's Christianity has a huge variety of expressions. And so I looked at that. I looked at way of nature kinds of things. I've looked at Hindu kinds of things. I've, I've explored lots of different kinds of spirituality, Buddhist included. And when I was a um, camp chaplain, not a camp chaplain, a, a campus chaplain at San Jose State University, I, I ran a um, spiritual program on campus, which was interfaith and very nature-centered. And so that we were able to do things there that I wasn't able to do in, in, a, in a church because we were working with young people in a much freer setting. And so I've had a lot of those kinds of experiences, and I'm very proud of those experiences. And um, hoping today to help you maybe see a different part of Christianity that you haven't seen before or read about or heard about. And I'm trying to do this from the point of view that probably many people listening aren't regular churchgoers and maybe never been to church, but I'm guessing that some of you grew up in what I call a Christian culture. So you're kind of familiar with some of Christian's terms. You know what Easter is, perhaps. You know what Christmas is, perhaps. And perhaps you know who Jesus is. So I'm going to try to go from a pretty basic level when we get into that material. But I want to talk about um, Way of Nature and John Milton. Um, we met in 1985. And the reason we met was there was a gentleman, an environmentalist who is also a Christian philosopher, theologian, by the name of Fred Krueger. And he had this seed of a dream. And his dream was to have a North American conference on Christianity and ecology. And this would have been the first nationwide conference addressing Christianity and ecology. And Fred called together some people, which included myself and John, and several other people kind of prominent in that area. And um, we were the people who were germinating his seed and getting together to build this conference, which took place uh, and a couple years later, because it took a couple years to plan it, but it was the first, as far as we can tell, the first national attempt to really talk about Christianity and ecology in 1987. So um, we were sitting around the table, you know, getting to know each other and all of those kinds of things you, you do. And uh, John was introducing himself. And, and what caught my attention was um, he was talking about the sacred land here, where we are today. And he was talking about how at that point in time, he hadn't had the land that long or hadn't been really working with it that long. But he talked about his vision that he had in the cave up there about the land and the stone seats. And, and then he went on to say how he was working to heal the land. And that just really resonated with me. And that kind of connected me with John. And over the time, then we worked together there. And then... Um, we, the conference went off, and we had some pretty amazing people there, including Paul Shepard, the, the poet who was sharing some of his material. And a lot of the material that we were working with came kind of from the ideas of Thomas Berry also and others. So the conference happened. I was up in Alaska at that time in a parish in Juneau. It was time for me to take a parish retreat. And 
Um, many years ago, my bishop had introduced me to uh, a religious organization, a Christian religious organization um, called Spiritual Life Institute, and they have a retreat center here in Crestone, Nova Neda, and they have hermitages. And so I came down to do a hermitage solo Christian retreat. And I was down here, and all of a sudden I realized Crestone, Colorado is where John Milton <laughs> had the sacred land. I never made that connection before. And so that started even a little bit more excitement about knowing John and, and so forth. And, and so then I signed up for the 28-day um, solo, which also included, I don't know, another extra 14 days of uh, training and training. Uh, to be kind of a nature guide, nature quest guide, and so forth. So I had a 28-day solo here, and uh, I was able to survive, although the mosquitoes tried to drain my blood at that particular time. Um, and uh, it was just a really neat experience for me because um, to be alone, I've done a lot of camping, obviously, at that time, camping in Alaska, a lot of places, but never really <coughs> had spent you know, 28 days alone. And so during that time and following John's exercises and so forth, you know, the Qigong was something I really resonated with, this connection of earth and heavenly energy. And for me, a lot of the stuff that we were doing in John's teaching, someplace back here, I was translating into Christian metaphor also. And so the energy of Qigong for me was the energy of the Holy Spirit. And the time that we were alone was, you know, kind of a reflection back to the time of Jesus' great vision quest, his 40 days of temptation. And we did mirror practice. And for me, the mirror practice was a time of um, just really getting to know myself different and better. It was a time when I was just coming out as a gay person. And that mirror experience really helped me solidify that identity for myself. What was the mirror practice? Uh, the mirror practice is when you sit in front of a mirror and stare at the mirror, just stare at it for long periods of time. And if you're, sometimes if you're lucky, your, your, your reflection in the mirror kind of disappears. Yeah. And something that, by the way, came, I learned it from some of my Hindu teachers because they would practice this in the Himalayas in very remote caves and locations. And it was a kind of very deep practice of the who am I type of self-inquiry practice done by the Hindu tradition, right. where you inquire about the truth of yourself and the truth of the sacred essence of yourself, which we these days hear in the way of nature called true nature. It's all like that. Yeah, that's what it was for me. That's how it worked. It was perfect. <laughs> and, and just being outdoors, you know, for that period of time and just learning to really observe nature close up. I remember, you know, you get bored sometimes out there. And I, in the evenings, I would go down to this one little spot and it seemed for some reason there was a lot of dragonflies would fly through there. And I'd sit there and watch the dragonflies catch mosquitoes <laughs> and just nature observation. I had a very special place to meditate which was called the Diamond Mound here, where it, the mountains and the energy, the earth energy lines up perfectly and just a very special place to meditate and to just go deeper.
and uh, it was a long time ago, so I can't remember all these quite details without looking at my journals, but it was a very significant time in my life. Um, and the teachings were very, very important. So that was my first intro to John's work. And we had a wonderful uh, connection during this because during the 28-day solo, I would come in once a week. We would share, see how things were going. And uh, during that time, we, we really deepened our friendship. Sure. And it was really a beautiful it was. It was. It was just mind-blowing and life-changing, obviously. Yeah. And so that connected me with John, and it connected me with some other, some of his other students. That we're still friends today, and luckily we live kind of close together. So um, that was just great. And then, so once I made that step, I kind of followed John around a little bit to other places to do solo adventures. We went other places here. I was in um, Mexico for the first Baja uh, quest there. I was in New Mexico at the Sun Circle. That's what it's called there. And um, so I did a lot of those kinds of things. And then finally I reached the point where um, I could clear my calendar enough and I said, okay, I'm going to do the 40 or 44 day solo, wilderness solo. So I came here, and there was a group of people, and we did the preps, and I hiked my stuff up. The, you know, it takes a lot of trips to get 40 days' worth of supplies up the mountain. So eventually I got the stuff up there, set up my tent, and was sitting there. And a friend of mine had um, given me a book by Teilhard de Chardin, who is a very interesting theologian who talks about Earth and and nature and so forth. And um, so I know John doesn't like us to read on solos, but I figured for 44 days I'm going to do a little reading. <laughs> so I was reading this book, spiritual book. John, it was a spiritual book. And I, I got to this section in the book. It was talking about how everything is interconnected in nature and in the world. And then I heard a noise over behind me. And I had no idea what that noise was. And um, eventually I turned around enough to see it was a mother grouse. And it came out of the brush or whatever. came out, and then it was followed by, I think, about six little baby grouses. And they walked by and then walked, disappeared into the other side. And, um, you know, and spiritual things come, they sometimes come in instantaneous Insight, which takes a while for you to work through, but the insight that came to me was um, this grouse and its chicks reminded me of a Bible passage in the life of Jesus, where Jesus is almost at the end of his life, and he's looking, he's on a hillside, and he's looking back to Jerusalem, and he says something like, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, I wish I could gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. And um, for me, that was what came to mind, that Christian story. And then things just started happening, 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 happening. And um, because up until that time, I'd been doing most of my environmental, spiritual work with churches. And to tell you the truth, it wasn't being very successful. Um, churches weren't ready for it or whatever, I don't know. But anyway, it wasn't happening. And so during this moment of insight, it was like, 
you need to make these offerings available to schools and children or whatever, colleges. So that was my insight. This was day three <laughs> of 40. <laughs> so I thought at that point in time, my quest is over. So I said, I can't really go back <laughs> after only three days. <laughs> And so I hung out another seven days and kind of worked at some ideas and stuff and, and worked it out. And so I left, came down, and told John what had happened. And he says, yeah, it's, you, you, know, you need to go back and get started on this stuff. And so I got back to town in San Jose, California. And um, I needed a place to work. I have a huge library, and I needed a place to put that library and spread out a little bit. So I, um, I called uh, some churches and said, oh, you know, do you have any room where I could come and bring my library and work and stuff. And I called St. Francis Church of all churches. And they said, oh, maybe, but you need to talk to our Sunday school superintendent. And so I talked to her. Her name was Catherine. And she said, yeah, I think we could work something out. We have some extra Sunday school rooms you can, you can occupy. And then she says, oh, let me put on another hat. She says, I'm on the board of directors for the Canterbury community, which is an Episcopal campus community at San Jose State and our chaplain is leaving and we're looking for a chaplain and would you be interested this was in 1999 and I said yes so you see the connections go back get connected to schools children whatever and within days of being back that it happened and so again a life-changing event and so that's when I started my 14 years of campus ministry at San Jose State University, where we included lots of environmental things, including I showed the movie 23 times of Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth, because Al Gore uh, released the movie to religious organizations before he released it to the public. Yeah, and so... As a religious organization on campus, I had access to this before anybody else did. And so I showed it, and I had um, professors just lining up to bring their classes to see it and so forth. It was one of the most effective things I did on campus ministry. But so, you know, kind of this 40 days in the wilderness and this grouse <laughs> and her chicks took me into that, into that level. And so that was very significant to me. And then after that 40-day attempt, <laughs> there's been other times where I've joined John with some advanced training groups and, and so forth. And the whole time trying to change what John's teachings it, into some what I consider the Christian metaphor. Because even though I'm a Christian minister, I always tell people the Christian metaphor is my primary metaphor out of which I operate, including all these other ways that I talked about earlier. So I'm not real stuck on it, and, um, but I try to make it blend with these other ideas and cultures and, and theologies and so forth. So that's what, how John and I got together. Yeah. Great story. I learned a few things. <laughs> no, you remembered a few things. <laughs> Yeah. That experience of the grouse is a very classical example of what we call a totemic experience where 
nature shows up, since everything is interconnected and uh, completely interwoven, at, certainly at a quantum level, rather than deeper level of reality, these totemic experiences literally at the sacred place of the sacred shows itself as a way of communication. And those are called, in the Native American way, totemic experiences. And many people go into, especially the deeper programs, like the, the two that you engaged with the 20-44-day solos, have these powerful totemic openings and experiences, which your grass experience with chicks is absolutely perfect. Yeah, it was, it was. Thank you. And changed my life. So I want to say, um, even though I've been a Christian priest for close to 50 years now, that if I look back over my adult life, I can say that all of my important spiritual insights and experiences have been in the outdoors, not inside the church building, except for two exceptions, and that was when... I was ordained, and when I was married. <laughs> Those two times were high experiences, and they were inside buildings. Um, so I would like to kind of switch gears now a little bit to talk about the church, Christianity, and its role and the way I have looked at it in, in, in my life. And um, as I said, when I was working with John, I was always kind of making these translations in my head and I had some notes about how to take some of John's teachings and put it into Christian language etc so it's always been part of who I am but um, I remembered a phrase from seminary days when we were studying the Psalms and the author of this book coined the term Christian nature wisdom tradition and that term always stuck with me because when I was in Alaska, I took people out into the wilderness and on spiritual trips. We canoed the Yukon. We paddled to southeastern Alaska. We hiked the Chilkoot Trail. We did lots of things, but we also had this little bit of spiritual connection that we talked about while we were doing that. And they were very powerful times for, for the people on those experiences also. And, and I created something by accident, and that was some adults wanted to go on in one of these trips that I was doing. And I thought, oh, I don't know. No, I don't want to do this. So I did the first trip I did over the Chilkoot, I did just with adults because I was new to Alaska. I wanted to figure out what this is all about. And, and then some other adults said they wanted to do some trips with me. So then what happened was I blended the adults with the young people. So our trips were adults and young people, which I thought was really very good. I mean, when you're canoeing down the Yukon and you have an adult in a canoe and you have a youth in a canoe, there's a lot of communication that goes on. And, you know, it's just perfect for the, that kind of metaphor of being out in, in nature. So that Christian nature wisdom tradition kept my attention. And then um, eventually I came down to Berkeley to work on a doctorate. And I worked at, uh, in the, at the Graduate Theological Union. And I found a school within that union that would let me kind of create my own doctoral program. And so I created my own doctoral program Christian nature wisdom tradition. <laughs> 
and Christian environmentalism. And that was what I studied. And so I was able to really work more and more into the Christian nature wisdom tradition. And that is what I consider kind of my specialty today. So what is the Christian nature wisdom tradition? Well, there's wisdom traditions all over the world, all different kinds of wisdom traditions. And this happens to be a tradition that was founded in our Judaic roots and in our Christian roots. And um, if you look back in the book of Kings and talks about Solomon, Solomon was supposed to be the wisest person in the world, according to the Bible stuff. And uh, if you look at Solomon, it tells you about Solomon's wisdom. It tells you, and I don't remember the exact number, he wrote 3,000 songs. He wrote 1,500 proverbs, et cetera, et cetera. And then it says, and Solomon could tell or talk about plants from the great trees of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop growing on the wall. He could talk of animals and fish and birds, et cetera, et cetera, because that was part of his wisdom, was this nature wisdom. Nature wisdom wasn't just for the people out in the country planting and harvesting. It was for everybody in the Jewish tradition. Nature wisdom was there. And of course, that gets brought into the Christian tradition. Jesus grew up in the Jewish tradition. And you got to think of his time. You know, he grew up in a time when you walked every place. And when you were walking, you observed what you were seeing. You know, he was involved in natural activities of various types, you know. So he was, he grew up within that tradition. And so that was part of what Jesus was. And if you look at Jesus's teachings, you'll see that most of his teachings are nature-based. You know, it's surprising, but when you look at them, they are. You know, some of you who are, maybe are familiar with some phrases in the Bible, you know, he talks about the birds of the air and the grasses that are here today and thrown into the fire the next. He talks about fig trees. He talks about planting. He talks about harvesting. He talks a lot about how seeds grow and what happens and how weeds grow around the seeds. He talks about the pearl of great price. He talks about lots of nature metaphors because he was talking to a group of people who understood nature metaphors, not some high-handed theological concepts. And so that's the nature wisdom tradition. And you find it in the Psalms. You find it in other parts of the Bible. And nature, the wisdom tradition in general is the writings in the Bible that are poetic. They tend to be more what we would call feminine inspired. They are stories. They are proverbs. They use nature metaphors. This is nature wisdom. It comes down to us. And um, there's a great feast in the Christian tradition called Pentecost, when the gift of the Holy Spirit came to the church after the death of Jesus and after his resurrection. And People were gathered, the apostles were gathered, and they all started speaking in different languages because they were inspired by the Spirit. And the, the, the Bible goes on to talk about all the different, there were Medes and Parthians and people from Phrygia and Pamphylia, etc. And they all could understand what the disciples were saying in their own language. Now, for me today, 
the common language that is spoken around the world is not English, it's not Chinese, it's not Russian. The common language spoken around the world today is the language of ecology. And so this has become the language of the world and the language of the church also, to speak in ecological terms. And so, as I mentioned earlier, there's always been this strain of environmental or creation-centered spirituality within the church. And some of our most important saints are people who are within that tradition. And I think probably the first one that comes to mind is St. Francis. <laughs> and so St. Francis grew up a very wealthy person. And as the story goes, he got fed up with the commercialism of the day. He stripped off all his clothes and walked off into the woods. And that started his tradition. And you also need to remember that he wasn't well accepted at beginning either. He was going against the current. But some people have been lucky enough to go to where St. Francis spent time in a cave. Yeah, I, I was very, very fortunate. But two years ago, years ago, I went to Italy to teach. We have a very vibrant little way of nature uh, Tuscany group. And there was a woman there from Russia, and a good friend, Christian person from, from Tuscany. And they took me over to a... Uh, to the cave, which was, I guess, the main cave where St. Francis practiced and cultivated. And I remember going down into this cave, and I was very fortunate because I was able to go down in a period when there was nobody there, which is, I guess, not so common. And, uh, <clears throat> and my Russian friend kind of guarded the entrance, so I actually had some private time. Uh, I probably had a good uh, 20 minutes of to meditate on the rock that St. Francis sat to do his meditation practice. And uh, I have to say, with the energy field for that place, is one of the most powerful energy fields I've experienced anywhere. It's right up there with many of the places, the caves I've meditated in, in the Himalayas and uh, in places of pilgrimage in, in other parts of the world that carry a field of deep sacredness and high levels of attainment. So just by being in that cave, I could tell that St. Francis had established a very high level of spiritual awakening because the field was there. Yeah. He left that field behind. It was a huge gift. Thank you, John. Yeah. So I can't spend time talking about every saint, but you know enough about kind of St. Francis, the archetype of St. Francis. Another person that was very important in this tradition was Hildegard of Beguin. He lived in, she lived in the 13, or no, the 1100s. And um, similar to Francis, who was, came, actually came after her, she grew up in a wealthy home, and she renounced all of that wealth to be a nature mystic, is what she ended up being. And she was an, and she founded nunneries, and she was an abbotess, and very well respected in her time. She was known for her artwork. She had visions, and she would paint these visions. And they're available today. If you can find them on the web or in a book, they're just, you would think they were modern paintings, the way they, the colors and the themes. And she gives these visions. And one of her themes, which I find very interesting, was that, Christ and the Christ power 
was greening energy, greening energy, relating it all to nature. And she was a healer and she studied and she studied plants and botany and healing. And actually she was very scientific for her day. And um, she has journals and all this stuff is available, but it's just amazing her influence and coming from nature for healing and for this theological understanding of Jesus. Um, another person that you may have heard of is Meister Eckhart. And he, he and John could be cousins. They talk in the same language about things, about form and formlessness and back and forth and stuff. And um, a little bit about nature, but mostly about these deeper theological concepts, Meister Eckhart. So those are some other people that have been um, in this tradition. And um, John has had some experiences with some other saints within the Christian tradition also, and he maybe would like to talk about. Oh, yes, there was one, uh, one experience I had. I went to Mexico. I had many students in Mexico in the, back in the, 60s, the 70s and 80s. So I would go down to Mexico City to teach. And um, one of my students gave birth to a child. She said, John, could you come down and do a baptism for this child? We really would appreciate that. So I went down and <clears throat> they gathered the waters from the four different directions surrounding Mexico City, the waters that flow into the Big Valley, the Great Valley of Mexico. And uh, <clears throat> we gathered to do the baptism uh, with those four orders to be used for the baptism ritual itself. But as part of it, I had to go, I went with one of the, uh, one of the individuals who knew this one direction that ended up being in the area of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And uh, I don't know if you have heard of that story, but basically uh, uh, this was a, uh, a manifestation of uh, Blessed Virgin Mary. The Divine Feminine mm, yeah. Virgin Mary. That happened uh, near the, the Valley of Mexico or part of the Valley of Mexico drainage of watershed. So I, I was interested in that tradition. And I went down to be part of the water gathering ceremony for that, for the baptism. And uh, we went into the church there, the, the wonderful uh, Cathedral, which is just again one of the more the, the, the radiation of love and uh, compassion in that uh, cathedral is absolutely mind-boggling. It's just one of the more powerful spots in Mexico that I've encountered. I live part-time in Mexico, so uh, as I was coming out of the uh, cathedral and that, having that wonderful experience of the connection with the spirit of this being that was called the Virgin of Guadalupe. Uh, kind of uh, wild looking like, went like this. Come with me. And then I went over to him and he said, we've been waiting for you. We knew you were coming here. I said, really? Said, who am I? I'm just a <laughs> So he took me behind he drew up into a, a mountain area nearby, which was one of the places where the first encounter occurred between 
Juan Diego was the was a peasant who went out to basically gather some uh, some gifts for the uh, the church elders and bring them back. And he, uh, as he was going out on his uh, trip to gather a few things for the the nascent church, uh, which hadn't really been formed or established very strongly yet. Uh, this manifestation of a uh, goddess figure, a feminine being, radiant with light, just all rainbow colors, and uh, manifested in front of him and said, I've, and of course he fell on, on his knees and was completely awestruck. And he, she said, uh, I want you to take these roses, and she manifested beautiful armload of roses. I've manifested these roses for you to take back to the elders uh, and as a gift for me. And so he, he thanked her and picked up the roses and, and left him and back to, to return the roses to the church elders. Of course, when they received the roses, they said, he said, this was a miraculous uh, apparition or, or happening. In, and the roses are meant to be the proof of this. And they said, well, that's not really very good proof. You could go and cut some roses down the road. And uh, <laughs> bring it to me a story like that. It's not proof of a miraculous event like that. Uh, you're gonna have to do better than that. And he was kind of very disappointed at that reaction, but uh, went back and walked up to the same area where he had the first uh, miraculous apparition had appeared. And she reappeared and once again said, well, did they receive the, the roses? And they said, he said, no, sorry, they didn't believe me. She said, well, they will this time. And uh, she said, uh, here, um, um, place your rope here on the, ground, on the ground and I'm going to give you special roses. So she remanifested another bundle of roses. And they wrapped up in this this uh, tunic or robe and taken back to the fathers. Of course, he said, well, it's, it's, it's not going to make any difference. It's the same thing as I did before. And uh, But he followed her advice and uh, went back and represented the roses to to the elders and laid them down on the ground. And they saw he was carrying the roses for them again. And they were looking kind of suspiciously at this because they, it's the same old story. And he laid the roses down with the tunic and, and then the roses fell out. Inside the tunic was this almost like a radiation print of the Virgin of Guadalupe, her image. And that of course blew them away. Even today they can't really explain how that image, even with modern yeah. scientific technique could be used to to make an image like that in the tunic. So that became, that was the origin of the uh, first appearance of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And uh, the the man who led me around to the spot where some of this took place said, we want to tell you that actually her real name in our tradition, who is part of a, a, an indigenous tradition of that part of the world, her real name is the goddess of rainbow light. <laughs> and she wanted to re-manifest in this time to be of service to the people of this time.
and be able to provide gifts from the goddess level of being to people of this time. And so she's willing to take whatever her name is appropriate that helps her to be of service mm -hmm. in that way. So that's a little backstory. Yeah, nice. That. And by the way, when we gathered the water there and took it back for the baptism that I was asked to do, when we did the baptism, including that water from the very special place, at the moment of the baptism, a star that was in the sky nearby came, became very brilliant, and a blue light came down from the star mm. and lit up uh, myself during the baptism and the, the head of the child. Uh, quite an amazing event. Yes. Miraculous. Just a little backstory. Yeah, that's very interesting, yeah. So I want to go back into uh, scripture again for a little while and talk about this nature wisdom or Christian nature wisdom that's within scripture. And there's so much that we can't talk about, but just a tiny little bit. But I think one of the best ways to start is the story of Noah. And I think most people know the story of Noah and we, at least the first part of the story of Noah. And so I want to look at that very briefly through some what I call green lenses of looking at it from an ecological and spiritual point of view. So Noah is selected by God to build the ark, et cetera, and gets these directions. And, you know, Noah's feeling pretty good. You know, oh, God really likes me. He chose me to do this really important work and everything. So he's pounding away, building the ark and feeling really good. And then all of a sudden he gets the instructions from God. Well, this ark isn't just for you, you know. You've got to take your family with you. And so what, I, what is being said here is that salvation, now salvation is a churchy term, but it basically means wholeness. So what is being said here is wholeness of life can only be accomplished through family and that idea of community and other people. And so Noah says, you know, he accepts the fact he's going to bring his wife and kids with him, etc. And he's pounding away some more, and then he gets this other, you know, shocking revelation from God. Oh, by the way, we're building this ark so you can bring two of every kind of animal into the ark with you. And so that's that. The next step of that is individual, family, community. And then the next step, in order to have, to have wholeness, we have to have all of creation with us. And big the big family, all of creation. And so that little simple, what ends up being a children's story about animals coming in the ark is really very deep theological and telling us how it is that we have to live as human beings. We have to care for our family, human community. We have to care for animals. And then the end of the story, Noah kind of has his own little vision quest on the ark with his family because he's isolated, etc. It comes to an end, um, you know, and you can read the details of how it comes to an end. But basically, when it's over, Noah gathers his family and um, he builds an altar and he's going to make a sacrifice to God as required in those traditions. And so... Um, during this time of making the sacrifice, God says to him, you know, Noah, I, you know, I'm really kind of having regrets that I wiped out everything. And so I'm going to make a promise. 
going to make a covenant or a promise to you and your family that I will never destroy the world again with water. Now, the really interesting part of this covenant that God makes with Noah is the covenant is made not only with Noah and his family, but it's made with all of the animals on the ark too. So God is including the animal life in this covenant that he's promising, God making a covenant to animals. And so that's a very important part that I think we sometimes overlook, that animals are very important to God and to our human wholeness. We can't be whole human beings without these animals and, and, and creation. And so that's one story that kind of comes out at me today. And, um, and then if we kind of switch to the New Testament again, in the life of Jesus, we've already mentioned, you know, a couple of things about the life of Jesus. We mentioned that, you know, he grew up in the nature wisdom tradition. He grew up in the out of doors like people did in Israel at that time. He spent a lot of time outdoors, going to the well to get the water, doing all this outdoor stuff, walking wherever you were going from city to city. So he grew up in that tradition. Um, but, you know, he, when we start recognizing him as this spiritual teacher when he was 30 years old. Um, you know, we, the Gospels are written about him. The Gospels were a new type of literature. The Gospel means the good news. It means, in longer terms, the good news of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And what did Jesus Christ accomplish that they're writing about? Well, we already mentioned we're writing about the healings that he did and these nature metaphors that he talked about and all of those kinds of things. But they also there's another part of it that we need to remember too, and that is that several times in the Gospels they say Jesus went alone into the wilderness to pray. Not only did he have his 40-day experience at the beginning of his ministry, but all through his ministry he connected to God, Creator, in the out-of-doors, in the wilderness, by himself many times. So that was a very important part of who he was. And unfortunately, I think the church kind of lost that idea of going off into the wilderness to connect with God. But that was important to, to Jesus. And the other thing that was important in the gospel stories is they wanted to demonstrate that Jesus was the Lord of creation. Now, John talks about that in the beginning of the Gospel of John and what's called the prologue to John. And he basically says in the opening verses that everything that ever was created was created through Jesus and through God. And so they, Jesus is seen then from the Christian eye viewpoint as a creator, God also. And all of creation comes into being through him and with him and in him. And so the gospel stories try to tell us ways of that, how Jesus was kind of the Lord of creation. So how do they demonstrate that? Well, they talk about the time Jesus was out in a boat and this huge storm was coming in and they were going to drown everybody in the boat. And Jesus says, be still. And the storm stops. And from a theological point of view, that's demonstrating that Jesus is, has control over nature. And then there's the story of him walking on water. 
another example. Another example of this control over nature is how he takes a few loaves of fishes and bread and feeds a multitude of several thousand people two times. So he's able to manipulate creation. He's the story of how he changes water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. There, these stories demonstrate his command over the earthly elements. And then, of course, jumping ahead a little bit to the end of his life, when he's had with has his core group of people together, his disciples, and he's at the Last Supper, his last meal before he is goes through his passion, death, and resurrection. And he talks about what Christians now call Holy Communion. How he takes bread and wine, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Now, different Christians understand that in different ways, but it's still a metaphor that shows his control over the natural world. And it becomes the central ritual of Christianity is the Holy Communion. And that Holy Communion reminds us every time that we gather to celebrate communion that we are all interconnected. We're all in communion with everything and everybody, not just the people in the church getting communion that day or not just Christians getting communion around the world, but we're in Christ and if we're in Christ, we're in all of creation because he is the Lord of creation. And so when we're receiving communion, we are in the mountain lion. We are in the bear. We are in the river ecosystem. We are in all of the environment. And Christians don't think about that very often. So that is just a really important thing. And the other part about this whole communion thing is it is a demonstration of Christ's love for us and of God's love for us. And when we're in that mystical moment, we are in that so deep in, in God and Christ's love. And love is, you know, the primary teaching of Jesus was love. And it became the primary teaching of the church in many ways. Love for others. Love your neighbor as yourself, etc. And um, the love, then, is the glue of the whole cosmos. The love is what lose the cosmos together and Christ is one carrier and bringer of that love into the world and manifesting it for us now Christians have kind of always been interested many Christians have been interested in, in this these theological concepts of environment and creation and so forth and um, something very important happened not too many years ago, and I have a copy here and I wanted to show you. Some publishers came out with what is called the Green Bible. Now, in this Bible, what they've done is they've taken all the words that are about nature and creation and printed them in green so you can see them. And in the beginning of the book, there's essays by some very important Christian scholars about this connection of environment and scripture. And in the end of the book, there's glossaries of words uh, that are important in this thing. There's a whole section that's called the creation trail. So they, they walk you step by step through these concepts in the scriptures. It's a very important book. You can buy it on Kindle for, I don't know, seven bucks. But um, it helps Christians now 
look at scripture and look at the world through, like I said, green lenses. And so the church looking at things through green lenses, even before this Bible came out, started getting concerned about the environment. You know, they started taking that those commands from the stories in Genesis that you are to care for and nurture this garden that I'm giving you. And they started looking at what we were doing to it. And the church, in some ways, were, was blamed for some of the destruction of the environment. But the church started looking at it. And the church, as an organization, back in the 80s, started making some educational attempts at trying to, to really study this. I, I have a, a VHS that talks about climate change that the church put out Which year? in the 80s, and I don't know exactly, but pretty early in the process. And that was great, but what happens with the church is, you know, creation's good this Sunday, next Sunday we have to talk about something else. <laughs> so... And, um, and so it kind of fell away. And, but it's come back again now. And it's come back in lots of different ways. It came back through the Green Bible. It's come back through what Christians are calling care of creation. And so there's programs and teachings and preachings about how we need to care for creation. And... There's even, the church has liturgical cycles, and one of the cycles now that they've kind of put in there is called the season of creation, that for four Sundays preceding the Feast of St. Francis, we talk about creation and creation care. And so that's the primary emphasis of the church right now, is care of creation. But the church also realized long ago that about social justice issues, because the church has always but I think most always been about social justice issues, the care of the poor, building hospitals, schools, et cetera, but social justice issues. And they very soon realize that environment and the way we care for environment or not care for environment was a social justice issue because it affected people. And the people that it affected, for the most part, were people on the lower social economic level. And so they started looking at care for creation from the social justice issue. And that is an emphasis that is very much important and very much part of what it means to be a Christian. And so the church is doing these kinds of things. Um, you know, and the church, as many of you know, if you or don't know, the church in North America is dying as we know it. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But there are groups of people, even in these dying churches, that are scraping together money to put solar panels on their church and making their church as environmentally sound as they can be, talking about how to care for the environment at home, at schools, and so forth. And so that's a very important part of, of the church. Now, I, being an environmental education teacher have been involved with this for a long time. But having come through my spiritual journey with John and other ways, I became more interested in the spiritual reasons of why we need to care for creation. And this is where that nature wisdom tradition comes in. And, and I have always been trying to get people to understand 
the spiritual reasons why we care for creation and especially why we care for creation spiritually from a Christian perspective. And, um, you know, it's part of our tradition, which is what I try to point out. And it's part of our tradition to care for creation. And so what I, my little catchphrase goes something like this. Every Christian has a calling or a vocation, or if you're going to be a Christian, this is something you need to do. Every Christian has a calling or a vocation to live as simply as possible and to live in an environmentally sustainable manner so that others may simply live. And others, in this case, aren't just other people. Others are the polar bears and the other animals that are being threatened by our lifestyles. And consumerism, of course, is actually the religion of the world today. Of any religion, you could call it consumerism. And we all are beginning to understand how devastating that is to our global climate and, uh, and to our global environment and communities. So the church is kind of taking some directions that way. As weak as the church is today, we're still kind of pushing forward in that direction. Roger, in using the term church, many people listening to this uh, podcast may not fully understand what you mean by that word in relationship to many different denominations. Yeah, right. Church is like the grand term for Some Christians. <laughs> Christians are in the church. One holy Catholic church is what we call it in our creed. And... Um, you know, something, so we're talking about all these denominations, and something that's very important that we need to realize that, you know, we have a new pope a few years ago, and what name does he choose for himself? Pope Francis. The first time a pope has ever chosen the name of Francis because he believed in what Francis taught, which was this connection to nature and also the connection of caring for the poor, Pope Francis. And just, I think it was a year ago, maybe two years ago, Pope Francis published an encyclical about care for creation, which says to, especially to the Roman Catholic Church, you need to start paying attention to this. It's very clear on that. Yeah, very clear. And, um, and that's another document you can download if you want to. But you look at what was happening, and some of the very first people who were really involved in care of creation were nuns and monks in their monasteries. And even in the modern day, some of the modern uh, environmental movement um, that was inspired by Thomas Berry uh, took place in, uh, in a, a, a nun's monastery called Genesis Farm. And from there, all kinds of material was developed and, and spread out through the church. And so it is happening. And so I hope what I'm trying to say is, you know, we do have our shadow side, <laughs> but we're also trying to do a, a better job in caring for creation at this time. Great. Thank you. I'd like to talk a little bit more about our shadow side as Christians. And that goes back to the very beginning of the church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles went out to spread the word about Jesus, and the church was born. Now, 
this is a, a critical part that we often forget. The early church, the first 300 years of the church, was basically centered in cosmopolitan cities. Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's important to realize that the church at the beginning was an urban phenomena. Now, I want to say it's something which you may or may not agree with, but urban people, for the most part, back then and even today, sometimes think of themselves as better than the people who live in the country. And that was kind of the case back then. And so the church was this urban church, and the people that lived out in the country were the farmers and, you know, the shepherds and the herders and all of that kind of stuff. And they, the urban people kind of looked down on them. You know, they didn't have iPhones and all that kind of stuff. Whatever it was at that time, they looked down at them. And the word that they used was the word pagan. And what pagan basically means, the basic meaning of pagan is what we would say today is, forget the derogatory term, hillbilly, country folk, hick, <laughs> you don't know anything, stay out in the country. <laughs> Redneck, yeah, right. So that's where the word pagan comes from. And what happened in the church, the, sh the big shadow side of the church, which started to develop at that point in time, was that we discarded the nature wisdom of these people. We wouldn't have anything to do with it. And even worse than that, we started persecuting the people that were the healers with herbs and nature. And most of many of them were women. And, you know, the church called, you know, called them witches. And you know what happened to witches for the last 2,000 years. So that's where the word pagan comes from. And um, as the church started expanding outside of the cities, you know, there became a different understanding of that. And what happened is, I want you to kind of visualize the church as a snowball, maybe, starting to roll down a hill as it spread out into the world. And as it spread out, it kind of put layer upon layer of snow on it. But in the same process of doing that, what was happening was the church encountered face-to-face -face, the nature wisdom of these people. And they had to account for it. They had to do something with it. And what the church did with the nature wisdom of these people was they started to incorporate it into Christianity in one form or another, hence the snowball. It got, it got put into the snowball. And when they encountered the Celts, a lot of the Celtic theology got wrapped into the church. You know, the, the idea that you could have monasteries that were both male and female together. Lots of what we call Celtic spirituality and Celtic Christianity was incorporated into Christianity. You know, they incorporated, they, they encountered other cultures and it got incorporated into it. Even as they were destroying many indigenous cultures, not the church per se, but yeah, the church per se, especially in California and the mission system of slavery of Native Americans, they were also incorporating some of their traditions too. Hence, Our Lady of Guadalupe gets incorporated in. 
And so the church grows with all of these things and incorporates more and more in. And they took sacred sites, you know, sacred oak, oak groves that were sacred to the Druids and the Celts. Sometimes they cut them down, and sometimes that's decided that's where they were going to build their church because that was the sacred space. They recognized that as sacred space. And so we've incorporated that in. And so I know that's one of our shadows is what we did to those kinds of people and the, and the people at that time. But on the other hand, <laughs> those traditions have become very central to Christianity, especially right at this time of the year when we're talking about Advent and Christmas. Most of our Christmas celebrations could be classified as pagan. You know, the Advent wreath, bringing these greens into the house. And, you know, the most pagan of all of the Christmas things that we celebrate is the Tannenbaum, the Christmas tree. And we bring it into our churches, into our homes. And we put a star or an angel at the top because it represents how the tree is this conduit of spiritual energy. So we put an angel at the top and we put down below, in my day, we used to put just a white sheet down there to represent the snow on the ground. And so the tree connects the earth with the heavens. And on the tree, we hang ornaments that are beautiful and we put lights on it because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, the light of the world. We, we put ornaments on there. We collect sometimes from vacations or other important parts of our life. And so the tree represents all of this. And then the tree becomes, unfortunately, a foreshadowing of the tree, which is also known as the cross on which Jesus dies. And so these traditions, holly and mistletoe and ivy and poinsettias and all of this stuff is stuff that was brought in from the nature wisdom or nature metaphors of people and cultures that became Christianized. And so we brought that in, and it's still a very important part of our, our life. Do you have any recommendations for modern Christians to learn from the early arising of Christianity in its early days and the practices and the processes that were, for example, this time of solitude yeah. in nature? Are people doing that today in Christianity? A uh, few people are, but I would say, you know, the tradition within Christianity, unless you were a monk or a nun, was not to do it outdoors, but it was to do it at a monastery or in a building or in a cell or something. But yeah, I think there's, you know, the, this whole awareness, which partially you started in the American culture from the days that you were doing your little vision quests as an eight-year-old or six-year-old or whatever, seven-year-old person, you know, all the years you did that, and eventually how you brought it into the culture, this whole idea of a fasting vision quest, and then honoring the Native Americans, you changed, the, you, took, you took the word vision out, because that was very uh, Native American talk, and they, you wanted to honor all cultures that did vision quests, and many cultures did that kind of work, and so you came up with the idea of sacred passage, or I, sometimes you call it nature quests, fasting quests, and now the, the term that you use is the what, all in one or something? This whole time we call the all one time. All one time. We discovered nobody is really alone. 
All right. So we added the extra L and capitalized the O. We called it the O1 time instead of the solo time. Right, exactly. But it's interesting to me that Christ himself, as you pointed out really beautifully, had repeated immersions in nature and in wild country to pray, to do ceremony, to meditate, to ask for connection to source and to great spirit, as I would say in the native tradition. Right. And uh, this was an essential part of his practice. So it's, it would seem to me that uh, that part of it is part of a missing piece today in yeah. the Christian tradition. I think it's missing, and one of the reasons I think it's missing is because Christianity started out as an urban religion, and what is it? What percentage of the world population or the European, North American population live in cities today, urban? Huge percentage. That's dramatically, 75-80% of the people or whatever it is now. And so, just as the church back in the 300s were urban people, we're urban people too. And yeah, we use nature for recreation. And recreation, the basic word means recreation. And that is this idea of solo time, being out in nature for inspiration and, and so forth. But we have corrupted, the, from my point of view, corrupted the word recreation to mean adventure sports. Yeah, and it sometimes unfortunately turns into a W R E C K creation. Yeah. Kind of wrecking. Wrecking creation by running all your four wheels over very sensitive desert yeah, plants. Um, and We've done some programs with uh, We, Brad Gillen, and I have had to abandon many of the original sites that we used to use down there because ATVs have come in have destroyed the entire Southern Baja California coastline. Going over all the egg nests, yeah. going, going in hundreds and hundreds of ATVs, rolling down the beach with motors and high-speed runarounds. And destroyed the solitude, destroyed the peace, destroyed the tranquility, destroyed the deep connection to spirit. Yeah, destroyed the nature and polluted it in the same time, yeah. 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 So, so I, yeah, I, I agree with you. This needs to be more part of our Christian tradition and you know, I sometimes just take people out for a day, just to get them out for a day. Is uh, yeah. We found that we, we started a program called the Renewal Program, which is a one day, could be one or a weekend. You don't camp. You simply go out for half a day, for two or three days in a row, one, two or three days in a row, and you have half of that day in solitude, in nature, and making that deep connection. Beforehand, we might teach them some tools right. how to deepen that connection very skillfully and, and profoundly. And then when they come back, they have some time to share what's happened and, and learn how to better integrate what has arisen as a deep insight. One of the things that when I started this, I thought, well, this is going to be an awfully watered-down version of a sacred passage where you have a week of solitude in nature and a week of training and integration time put together. Uh, or Nature Quest, which is a bit shorter version of that. But what astounded me is that many of the people, even with a one-day program where they don't even camp overnight, have profound shifts of consciousness and begin to experience the rest of nature as part of their big family. Yeah. Just like you were saying with Noah. Yeah. I mean, really uh, profound. So there are possibilities to reinvigorate this, which are very real, and uh, we've I think we've proven through our own experience in the way of nature, it works. It's powerful, it's direct, it's simple, 
and it's available. Just have to do it. Oh, I agree with you, definitely. I guess our great minds are working in parallel <laughs> <laughs> channels without Thank communicating you. here. Yeah. Very powerful sharing. Thank you. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you. And this will reach many Way of Nature people and yeah. others. Yeah. So, so if anybody's interested in exploring this a little bit more through my eyes, you can go to my website. And it's easy to remember. I hope it's ecospirit, E-C-O-S-P-I-R-I-T dot org. Be sure you get the org in. Ecospirit.org. It's got some very beautiful videos on that website. And there's and a lot of material that I think backs up everything he said here sure, with us here today. Yeah. So, so thank you again. Yeah. For more from Roger Wharton, visit ecospirit.org. That's ecospirit.org. For more from John P. Milton, visit wayofnature.com. That's wayofnature.com.